Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to uh, Hiawatha, if you're a uh, part of our community for however long, or if you're visiting for the first time, as Spence said earlier, and I uh, think Peter too. Uh, welcome. Glad you guys are here to join us today for our gathering. We're going to dive right into our series on the Song of Solomon here, and I'll talk about that in a second, but just a uh, little aside here on where we're headed preaching-wise, to give you guys an idea, we're approaching summer uh, pretty soon, and that sometimes changes things around here. Uh, we will be going to one service on May 24th. We uh, kind of consolidate things a bit over summer, people traveling a lot and so forth, and students being gone a lot of times. And so we um, are going to go to one service at 10 a.m. from May 24th through the Labor Day Sunday, weekend Sunday, whatever that is. I forget the exact day, but whatever that day is will be our last. Uh, and then we'll go back to two services, uh, 9 and 11, the weekend after that, just for your planning purposes. But um, preaching-wise... Starting May 24th, we'll finish Song of Solomon the Sunday before that, but May 24th, we're going to start a new series, which will be, we've done this in the past, it's been like six years, it's been a long time, but we're going to start a series called our Big Questions uh, Sermon Series, which is a time for the pastors and elders to preach questions that you guys, the church gives us, that you want to hear a sermon on. So um, basically, we just want to say, please give us questions, because we'll have nothing to preach if you don't. So uh, supply us with some things. If you want to email us, that'd be great, or uh, throw it on the back of your blue cards, or just throw a piece of paper in that giving plate when it goes by. If you want to be anonymous, that's totally fine, too. A lot of people do that or have in the past. And uh, we, we don't announce who asks these questions anyway. But uh, we've done it in the past. It's been a great thing for us. It's just a, it's a chance for us, too, as overseers to um, not, like, you know, take a break from having to plan a series. This is a plan, way to plan it. Uh, we just, it's all the more a chance for us to really know we're speaking to uh, specific questions that you guys are asking about the Bible or theology or where Hiawatha is going to be in five or ten years. could be a vision related thing, and we can't promise it'll be a preachable uh, point, like you can get a, make a sermon out of it, but we'll at least get back to you on it and answer your questions. So um, again, we have about a month here or so to, for you guys to think about that and, and supply us with things. Uh, my email is chris at hiawathachurch.com. Uh, you can find it on the website too. I'll, I'll throw a table post up here this week as well. You can reply in there if uh, you would like to just make it public, and that'd be great too. Most people do that or have in the past, but um, if private, that's fine too. Just uh, throw something in the giving plate on Sundays or uh, set up an anonymous Yahoo account or Gmail account or something, too, and, uh, and just send us something that way. However you want to do it, it's great, but please uh, give us something, or else we'll just have to, I guess, do our own. Uh, Spence and I joke, we'll ask each other questions, and we'll just preach those. I guess we'll just, that counts. We'll just do that, too. But anyway, that's where we're headed for the summer months, and looking forward to that. But today we're back in Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 7 today, and there's only eight chapters in the book, so we're approaching the end. Uh, and remember what this book's about. If you're new to the book or the Bible, this is essentially, uh, in a nutshell, it's Old Testament poetry. It's a genre, a particular genre of scripture. It's difficult to understand, very enigmatic and um, symbolic, and so it's uh, taking some heavy lifting here in terms of interpreting this well, especially from a Christian standpoint, reading uh, spiritual themes and overall kind of biblical theological themes back into this story. It's, it's been fun to do, but very tricky, and today will not be an exception. It's a, a heavily symbolic passage. We'll get to that, but um, at least understand that it's a love story between King Solomon, son of David, in the Old Testament, written around 960 B.C., and his bride. And it, it spans their engagements and their anticipation of marriage all the way through the wedding and wedding night, their consummation of that marriage, all the way up to now we're kind of at this point where she experiences, uh, at least in a dream, separation from him, this emotional separation, some concern, some laziness. Uh, there's conflict, uh, at least perceived, and that's being overcome now. They're, coming, they're starting to come back together and they're approaching this secondary consummation, which we affectionately called makeup sex a couple of weeks ago. It's basically what it is. That'll be next week, though. We'll talk a little bit more about that specifically, but they're, they're talking about it. They're building towards that. 
in last week's passage, Spencer preached, and then this week's passage, kind of a part two uh, to whatever Spencer uh, preached last week. He's just talking about her. So a lot of this is just dialogue. It's, it's, it's Solomon and, and his bride kind of taking turns talking about each other, the relationship, different aspects of it, each other's character, each other's bodies. And, and we're learning about love, learning about marriage, learning about ultimately, and we'll talk about this, learning about God and his love for lost people like us. But I'm gonna, I'll come back to that. If you're new to the book, that's a huge piece to it. I want to remind you guys of that here in just a few minutes, but um, I'm going to read the passage first. Uh, so have that in mind. Overall context, they're married here. They're uh, coming back together after a brief separation. Uh, song 7, uh, 1 to 10. He speaks for most of this. She'll speak in, in the last half of uh, verse 10. <clears throat> How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gates of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your, bless, your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. All right, so... As we've been doing in this series, those of you who have been here at least for a week, uh, we've done this literally every week, so this will be a review for a lot of you, but uh, if you haven't been, just catch you guys up to speed. There are a couple of ways to look at not just uh, biblical poetry like this, but all types of genres of scripture. There's a lot of times a human and a divine side, and the spirit of how Christ himself is both human and divine, he is born a human being, but he is God in the flesh, the scriptures say. So in the spirit of that, this being the written word of God, Christ being the, uh, the word of God in flesh, we want to read this from both angles. And it's, it's a great thing. A lot of times it's hard to do that. It's tricky. It's not always as a, you know, an accessible way necessarily to read the scriptures and in, in every way the same way to do it. But it's really helpful to read the Song of Solomon this way because it's just it's the right way, first of all. We'll talk about that. But it's helpful to get both principles, human side, so principles about marriage. We've talked about that. But especially this divine angle of God speaking to us through a picture of marriage and a picture of love, even a picture of sex like this and saying, I'm kind of like this in my love for you. Not a one-to-one -one correlation. It's not literal. It's poetry. But in a figurative sense, in a metaphorical sense, there, there are correlations here between this man's love for this woman and what I think about you. And, and in, in a lot of ways, how my salvation for you can be sort of summed up in an accessible physical manner. Because a lot of times, these spiritual truths, these heavy spiritual truths about God's love for us, we just can't understand that. Like, what does it mean that the God of the universe loves individuals like us? That's a true good statement to bask in, right? And we know this. We, we rally around this as Christians. But there are times where we're like, I'll take it for granted. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take your word for it. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take that as truth. I believe that. But I don't feel that. I don't know what that really means. So God says a lot of times with physical things, he'll say, well, here's something physical and sensible to look at and to get a picture of it. So 
You see this every day. We see marriages. A lot of us are in marriages. We see love occur. We see sex occur. We see forgiveness occur. We see communication occur. We see conflict resolution occur. And we see different people loving each other. We see a man die for his wife and a wife reciprocate that love. All this and more. And God is saying, my story is embedded in that story. And really, it's all about me all along. That's the divine side. So the human side, principles uh, for marriage, divine side, which we'll spend most of our, we've been spending the majority of our time on that because that's really the trajectory of all of this is really to get to God, not to land here with ourselves or kind of here in a, in a marriage uh, with your spouse or your future spouse as some of you are engaged or want to be married someday. It's not just to land there and stay there, but to go through that, past that to God. As we sang, just as we just sang about in that song, God marrying, calling his church his bride and saying, I am like a good husband to you and my love for you. I'm faithful. I will never divorce you. That's what I'm like. So it's not just I love you, but I'm like, I'm like this. I'm like this Solomon here in this story for our purposes today and in this series in my love, in my love for you. So with the human side first, a couple of sides here. I want to take this opportunity on the human side of things, talk about a couple of broad principles, but to remind you that we're looking at principles, which is good, but, but to contrast that with the idea of looking at this book as a definitive how-to book on love and marriage, which is the wrong approach, at least in some ways, in extreme forms, and, and I'll come to that. But So one of the things we have to come to grips with interpretationally with a book like this, the Song of Solomon in a genre like this, is the book never says, if you read this, and some of you guys have read this in its entirety, and some of you just haven't yet, but so you know this, this book never really says to us, copy what you see here. That's never a poetic verse in the Song of Solomon. It never says that, copy what you see here. Now, there is broad encouragement to wait for marriage, to have sex, to be patient, in relationships, and, and certainly principles for husbands and wives to follow in their marriage, especially as we consult complementary New Testament passages on matters like communication and forgiveness. We've been talking about some of these almost every week in this series. And in today's passage, we're seeing this repeated principle of how complementing each other in marriage and just talking to each other, words in general, how those things have the power to heal. And they just do. If you've been in any relationship, even like a a non-marriage relationship, a friendship, or like a boss-employee relationship. You know how communication, if you're talking with that person, uh, things are probably going pretty well. You might not be best of friends, you know, kind of a friend, boss-employee, or whatever, neighbor level, whatever it is. Things are probably going pretty well. If you're working through your issues, you're, ta- you're not hiding things, you're not burying things, chances are, maybe there's some exceptions, but chances are things are going well. In a marriage, it's, it's completely the same, and I would see it save and heightened, that love and communication are, are intertwined. And also, what we've seen in here, I think in this passage, but in general in the series, how withdrawal and apathy and laziness are arch enemies in marriage and must be addressed. They must be slain. Now, these, are, these are principal arch enemies, and, and I think uh, antagonists, personified poetic antagonists in the story that, that are addressed and identified and, and overcome. There's distance between the couple that can be summarized as apathy or just separation or emotional distance that are identified and overcome, traveled over to get back together and so they can become one flesh and close and deeper friends and in a couple of cases in the book to have sex and consummate that marriage once again. So we're seeing that here as well, that one of the best ways to love is to talk. 
That's a, that's a, a general, broad principle to apply here in this, this passage in the book. One of the best ways to love your spouse is just to talk to them. And one of the best ways to hate them, to not love them, is to withdraw and to not talk, to keep things in, to not honor them when they want to work on things and actually get inside your soul and figure out what's going on. One of the greatest ways to manipulate and not love is to rob your spouse of words. And so that's come up a lot in this series. Again, we see the broad principle here. But again, going back to what I'm trying to get at here with this definitive how-to, it's not really what's going on. It would be strange, however, with all of that said, it would be strange to copy what the Song of Solomon is saying exactly and to take it extremely in every sense of the word, literally, with how we talk to our spouses. In other words, just for example, uh, Aletha and I went to a, a marriage retreat when we were probably a, a year into our marriage. Uh, it was through a, a different church. And um, a part of this retreat, they encouraged couples to go back to their rooms and, and use the Song of Solomon as a template more than a template, just to kind of read those words over each other uh, in your marriage and kind of just bless each other with that. And it was weird. I mean, it was kind of like, it was pretty forced. And I know what they're trying to do. And it's not like, hey, if that floats your boat, that's great. You know, if you feel like I'm a poetic kind of guy or gal and I want to be told that my neck is like an ivory tower, great. You know, that's good. But, you know, at least in, my, in my situation, my wife, it's not going to really... <laughs> you know, bless her to hear that your, your temples are pomegranates. It's not going to really say, oh, that's, not, you know, all of a sudden we don't have any marrow problems anymore because you called my temples pomegranates. It's not going to work. So there's, it was, I know what they're trying to do, but it was forced. And it, so, and I, this usually goes without saying, but you'd be surprised how much this is written on and preached and taught, how the book is really becomes not just, there's some broad principles here for marriage, but past that, this is a definitive how-to book on how to have sex. It's like this biblical Old Testament sex manual or communication manual in marriage or conflict resolution manual or things like that. And, and it is, as I said this before, it is decisively not that. Principles, absolutely. But this is not how we should, with the definitive how-tos, not how we should ultimately read the book. Because, and this is the best reason why, other than there's some common sense in play, this is not how the Bible reads the book. Uh, you know, one of the things we should, we should know, and maybe you weren't aware of this if you're not know this, uh, you know, I think about it this way. If this is supposed to be, as some say, a definitive kind of preeminent book on how to have sex or, or how to be married, and, and, and I mean, I mean to, the, to the T or to the word, literally, why is it never consulted as such in the New Testament? Why does the New Testament, when it talks about marriage and forgiveness, never cite this preeminent book on how to have sex, or how to love, or how to do engagement, or not that there aren't broad principles, there are, but it's never quoted once in context with, with any of these issues in uh, the New Testament, which I think is striking. And the answer is, I think, why is it not? The answer is because it's not about us. It's not ultimately about us. And so we, I think we have the tendency sometimes to read ourselves into the biblical storyline way more than we really should. We by default think, well, that's me, or that's about me, or... There are times for that, no question, no question. But we, we can do it more than we should, which can lead us then to too many how-tos, too much morality, rather than gospel. So in this case then, morality would say, do this or else. And there's a time to say do this or emulate this, for sure, broad principle. But it would say, do this or else, and then it's, it, it kind of stops there. But the gospel says, God is like this. Morality says again, do this. Gospel says, God is kind of like what you're seeing here. 
or maybe to expand out a bit, husband, this is what morality would say, husbands love your wives. And that's good. The Bible says that in many places, right? So this is actually a good example of this kind of moralistic call to, to model something here that we're seeing in the song. But the problem is it would stop there and say, that's it. That's all it's saying. Do what Solomon's doing. That's what morality would say. But the gospel would change the language a bit, encompass that, but say something more. The gospel says, when a husband loves his wife, it becomes a picture of a greater spiritual reality, namely, God-loving lost sinners, uh, and specifically, Jesus loving his bride, which is, which is the church. And that's how we should ultimately read the song, encompassing both, seeing some that human side, but then going past it, not stopping there, going past it to see this divine angle on what it's trying to say prophetically, what it's trying to point to prophetically, uh, like the rest of the Bible does. Whenever it reads marriage into the storyline, it's always talking about God's love for his people. God's not just interested in you having a better marriage. He's interested in you having a better marriage so that he can tell the lost world, I'm kind of like that. I'm kind of like that husband here. There's, there, there's a, there's, see, there's a deeper rationale. He doesn't just want our happiness. He wants his glory in our happiness. He wants his story to be told through our, through our marriages. See how it's both in the latter and not just the former? Got to have both here uh, or we're missing, missing a big piece to this. I want to read uh, one thing I, I read the first week in the series. I should bring this up one more time. George Burroughs, and I kind of summarized this earlier too, but says about the Song of Solomon that God can express to us inward spiritual beauty only through the means of outward sensible beauty. And in this, the song he makes, in this song, Song of Solomon, he makes use of this outward's beauty for impressing on us that which is inwardly beautiful, true, and good. And I really like that idea of impressing. That the physical, and this is way beyond the Song of Solomon, this is like how to read the Old Testament 101 right here. God will use something physical to impress on us a deeper spiritual truth. Saying this is a spiritual truth you can't quite comprehend. Let me hold out something physical. And Jesus does this in his ministry. I'm kind of like this bread. I'm kind of like this fountain of life. I'm kind of like this, this my gospel's kind of like this healing of the leper that I just did for you right here. Something physical you can see and hear and smell and touch and talk about with your friends and announce. I'm going to do that in your heart. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to accomplish this and fulfill this in a greater capacity on the, on the cross. And so it's forward looking. So the physical impresses on us the spiritual in the song, as he's saying here about the song, can be applied elsewhere, but uh, a very helpful interpretive tool to remember if you're already aware of this or not, just to know this for the first time. That that's what God is doing here. He's impressing on us the gospel through poetry. Impressing on us God's love through a story of a man's love for his bride. Encompassing their engagement to their uh, post-married life. Okay. So let's move now uh, with all of this said. And I, I'm starting here by way of reminder. But also because what I'm going to do with this passage will make very little sense to you if you don't have this foundation. So even if you don't agree, that's fine. But at least understand, this is, the, this is like, you know, the, the blocks that we're going to build the house off of, right? The, the, this, the foundation we're going to build the house off of here. Without this in place, what we're doing spiritually with some of the things that Solomon's saying to his bride will be, uh, you know, at best kind of a reach interpretationally. Uh, but if we have this foundation, it's really the only thing in a lot of ways we can say about it. It's the only ultimate thing. Uh, the only ultimate conclusion we can make is that Christ is here, veiled, but he is here. So the divine side, 
here is this picture then, if it's a, a, basically a section on a man speaking about and cherishing his wife, then the divine side of it is it's a picture, poetically and prophetically, of Christ cherishing his bride, uh, his uh, body. And, and based on these couple of verses from today's passage, remember this comes up three times, uh, maybe actually four, I forget, but a few times in the book, this idea of ownership. They own each other. When you, when you become married, you lose the rights to yourself. You kind of sign over your rights and you say, it's not about me anymore, it's about my spouse. And so, you know, he says about her, you know, or she says about him, that I am his and he is mine. So that there's kind of share, shared ownership. A husband becomes his wife's and the wife becomes her husband's. And here, he's cherishing her. His desire is for her in verse 7, or verse 10 rather, chapter 7. And he delights in her. In the New Testament, in Ephesians 5, it says this, kind of the same stuff, but this is important. It says this about marriage. In the same way, notice the link here between Christ and the church. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, and here's the key word, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So just, just like you take care of your own body in general, uh, the idea is we become so much one flesh and we get married that, you know, especially when a man loves his wife, it's kind of like he's taking care of his own body, just as Christ does the church. And that's why the Bible calls us the body of Christ. We are his body, and verse 30, because, again, we are members of his body. So in summary, we belong to him, and he cherishes us. These are important concepts going forward. We belong to him. He's looking at his church, and he's saying, this is descriptive of, this is how beautiful my church is to me. This is what's true about them because I've saved them. This is what I think about when I look at them. Really crucial stuff here, guys. This is like, talk about something that will release you of depression, anxiety. You know, there are many causes of those things and other things in life for sure, but one main cause of it is just bad theology. If you don't have a right view of God and what he thinks about you, or, and if I don't, it will send us into a pretty deep downward spiral, especially if you believe in his existence and you believe he's somehow kind of out there doing things in the world in light of what the Bible is saying. But if you have kind of a bad view of this, there's a spectrum there, but a, but a bad view, it will, it will send us places uh, without question that we don't want to go. So God understands, hear that as we read these things. We're going to look at three things today. There's lots here, but three for the sake of time. And understand these things spiritually in reference to how Christ and God talk about, talks about his people elsewhere in the scriptures. So the, the first is the first verse. Uh, he speaks about her feet. So in verse 1, he's looking at her and describes her and says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. So again, daughter here being a term of endearment, obviously not literal daughter, so not incestuous. He's just saying, O noble daughter, as a term of endearment here. Um, but how beautiful are your feet uh, in, in sandals? So the interpretational question then becomes here, uh, you know, we're going beyond the human and asking, well, how is this descriptive of God's love for his people? Or how is this language, one of the great helpful questions I ask is, how is this language used elsewhere in the Bible to convey similar ideas? Does God love his people's feet? Does that come up anywhere else? And if so, in what sense? Sometimes these are, these are clear yeses, and sometimes you're like, ah, I don't know. You've got to do some more digging. This is one of the clear yeses. And it comes up in Isaiah 52, 7, in elsewhere in the Old Testament, not too far actually, after this, God speaking through, to his people through the prophet Isaiah in the context of exile and sin and judgment, God's promising future salvation, Christ. 
And in, in the context of all that, he says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. Same language. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. And then in Romans 10, 13 to 15, this is quoted in the New Testament. I'll read this in context. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church and he's saying, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you just call on Jesus, you'll be saved. How then will they call on him, though, if they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And so there's a couple of things here to to pull from this. One, this is wonderfully depictive. Both Testaments speak to this, as we've seen here. Wonderfully depictive of Christian mission. This is essentially what you are if you're a Christian. You are a messenger. It's primary. If you think about what I should do on a daily basis as a Christian, what's my mission? What does it mean to be a part of a local church? What, what should be on the top of my, my, top of my to-do list? You should think, well, I'm a messenger. I have good news to share with someone else. He's saying, how beautiful are the feet, but it, he gets specific, of those who bring good news. That's what Christians do, right? We have news of victory for people. The war is over right? Throughout history, that's been some of the best news people have heard, physical wars. We have a better, we have a better war ending event and salvation event that we're announcing. The war is over, or cancer's been cured. Have you heard? Have you not seen? Go to your doctor and get the vaccine. Best news ever. And so on, on this heightened spiritual level, this is the kind of news that we, that we have for for the world, for ourselves as we keep basking in this, for our church community and family, brothers and sisters as we revel in this and remember it, but especially for people who have never, never heard. This is key. So feet imply movements. We're moving towards people, whether we're crossing oceans or streets or halls in a, in a, in a dorm or cubicles across the hallway in our office. Whatever it is, we're moving from wherever we are across some distance, no matter how short, and saying, essentially, have you heard this? We're messengers. We have something to say with our words. It's the epitome of Christian mission. It doesn't say how beautiful are the feet of those who bring physical healing to people or how beautiful are the feet of those who go minister to the poor. Though that's a piece to Christian mission, no doubt, but that's not what it says here, right? What does it say in both Testaments? What does God say? How does God look at the feet of his people and say, that's beautiful to me? He says, when they go and they talk about me to others with their words, when they go with the cross on their lips and they say, your creator has bled in this manner on a cross willingly with joy set before him for you. That happened in the world. And if you put your trust and faith in him, you'll be saved and forgiven. As it says here, all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. So one, to pull from all, this is Christian mission. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, and I kind of alluded to it, is God loves when this happens. Don't miss that. The Song of Solomon actually gives an angle on this whole, the feet of the, feet of the church are beautiful when they bring good news principle because we're, we're seeing Solomon love his bride's feet and as a picture of, of God loving his church feet. So this is not just feet are beautiful. It's God God loves when this occurs. He looks at our mission as a church. He looks at our movement, our missional movement, our evangelistic movement as a, as a corporate entity and as individuals and says, that's beautiful to me. 
I love that because he loves to save people. He loves when he sees his church go out with the best news because he gets fame and glory, we get joy, and he gets, the, he gets the satisfaction of seeing people saved from the clutches of hell. He loves to save people. See, we have to have that picture in place too, otherwise it's kind of transactional. It's, a, it's, a, it's an idea. It's not God loves this when he's doing it. It's, it's just this idea. So God loves the feet of his church. He loves when the gospel gets proclaimed and when people are saved. He loves to save people. And, and that moves us into the second piece. Uh, we'll, we'll see here. It's kind of all as there usually are, uh, with, especially with poetry like this. There's a lot of overlap, but he moves on here, Solomon does, to say in verses 4 and 7, I'm lumping these because it's um, the same poetic idea. He says about her neck, your neck is like an ivory tower. And about her stature in verse 7, your stature is like a palm tree. And so here, uh, he's cherishing the, the upright posture and stature of his bride. Uh, palm trees are very tall, upright trees, and the tower, of course, is a very uh, straight, upright structure. So her neck and the way she walks, he, uh, you know, men, men like this, right? This is not just something Solomon is adoring, but, but men look at their wives a lot of times and appreciate how they carry themselves, how they walk around, and how maybe upright they walk, or if they're, you know, if they dance, or whatever it might be, they, they adore that about their wives, and, and Solomon here is, is doing the same. But as we apply this spiritually, again, the question is, does God, does God appreciate that about his people as well? And in what capacity? Does God ever talk about his people walking with an upright posture? Does God, does God call us to walk in such a manner? And the answer is a resounding yes, and we don't have time to talk about this uh, exhaustively today, but uh, this reminds us spiritually that God, all throughout the scriptures, intends that we have a similar spiritual stature uh, to us. And he rejoices when we walk that way. And this is not simply about living better lives, because there is this place to, to talk about living upright lives, and that's, that's good. It's all well and good. But what this is really getting at is living free lives. One place you see this more clearly, uh, really clearly actually, is in Leviticus 26, when God here is speaking about Israel being freed from slavery in Egypt. It already happened. We call this the Exodus. It already occurred. But in verse 13, he says, I am the Lord your God, reminding them of this, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I, this is the key. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright. So there's movement here in the Bible between this hunched over stature, and the Israelites, if you didn't know, were enslaved to the Egyptians for 400 years, and their, their stature physically, but also in a spiritual kind of emotional sense, was hunched over in a non-palm tree-like, in non-tower-like manner they lived. They were enslaved to sin, enslaved physically to these Egyptians, but there's movement from that to walking upright. And walking, as Leviticus 26 says here, walking more erect, upright, free. No, not, no, more, no more yoke around the neck, but walking free. It's a picture of salvation, biblically speaking. Uh, and so God's people always then move from being hunched over, again, non-palm tree-like and non-tower-like living, enslaved, yoked heavily with pride and self-absorption. That's the bad news. But then moving to this, this, this state of freedom. 
So this is where the Song of Solomon becomes such good news for us because it's written in a context where Israel is and, and the world's with them. Israel's a microcosm of the human experience. So it's not just them. They're a picture of us. But they're constantly being enslaved and, and, and yokes are being constantly placed around their neck afresh. Time after time after time they're being enslaved physically and spiritually with that because it's a picture of their spiritual enslavement to sin. As we find out, more explicitly later in the story. But that's the bad news. But what makes the Song of Solomon good news is Solomon writes this, this poetry into the storyline to say that God is going to somehow make a palm tree-like stature possible for you. You know what happened when you came out of Egypt? That's going to happen again in the future. Your neck will be like a tower. You'll walk upright. You will not be enslaved anymore. And it will be a greater type of release, a greater type of freedom Freedom from death, freedom from sin, freedom from the wrath of God against sin, freedom from yourself. And you will never, ever, ever be enslaved yet again. So it points ahead then to a time where all of that type of hunched over, yoked, enslaved type existence would not, would not be anymore. And we see this same language used in the New Testament in Galatians 5 as just one of many examples, but... Paul here says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So he's saying, stand up straight. Like you crawled out of a prison that's too short to stand up in and too narrow to lie down in. Stand up and rejoice and never go back. It's for freedom that you've been set free. You're no longer enslaved. It's no longer your master. You're no longer a slave to sin. You are, for freedom's sake, you have been set free. And, and there, the call here for Christians, written to a church, for Christians is, therefore, never submit again to a yoke of slavery. Never go back to the state of thinking that there's no way out of my sin. It's a lie. It's a flat-out lie. And a lot of you guys are probably thinking that today, or you have in your past, or you will in the future. It is a, it is a flat-out lie from the pit of hell. Because Christ is stronger than your sin. He's stronger than the, the darkest things that you've ever thought or done in your life. And he said, no, for freedom I've set you free. You are free. You're my people. Walk in a palm tree-like way. Have a stature that the people of God have not earned, but they've been given. That I've given you. Don't, don't live like you're hunched over anymore, is this ultimate call. Don't live like you don't have a, a neck like the, like the Tower of David or like an ivory tower but rather live in a, free, uh, in a free manner. And actually here, I'm not going to go back into this all today, but in Galatians 5, the, the yoke idea, some of you guys know this, in context, he's not just talking about sin in general. He's talking about a church who, who's been saved by the gospel, but they're going back to law. They're going back to morality and saying, Jesus is good, but I also have to be a good person to be saved after, I, after I'm saved. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. You don't. Is Jesus everything for you or is he something for you? Is he all things or is he some things? He can't, he's either everything for you or he's nothing. He can't be something. He does everything for you or he does nothing. Which is it? That's his whole argument basically in this section. Well, really the whole book, but this section of Galatians is don't go back to law. And so if that's the case, then I think we can apply that to even some song of song imagery and say God loves this about his people when we walk not just freely away from our sin because he's made that possible by his own death, but he also loves it when we, when we walk freely in his grace and we're not held down by laws we can't keep. 
And if, you, if, if that's the nature of your spirituality, if you feel like, I believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, but I feel yoked by the Ten Commandments. I feel yoked by a law that I just can't measure up to. God is saying, why are you trying? Try to come to me. Don't, don't try to keep, don't, don't place a yoke around your neck that Israel could never keep, meaning the Old Testament law. They could never keep it. This is why the church talks this way in the New Testament. It says, why are we, there's a place in Acts 15, I think it is, where the Jews are saying this about Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. And, and there's this question of what Old Testament laws should they follow? And the, this council in Jerusalem finally decides, why would we place this yoke over this Gentile Christians that we could never bear? We couldn't keep it. Why would we place this on them when Christ has eradicated it? He's come to replace it. He's come to be our law. He's come to lavish us with grace. Not, not to kind of save us and say, okay, back to the drawing board, try harder. You know, that's, that's, that's going back to Egypt. It's going back to a slave-type existence. It's going back to a yoke-type existence and not taking Christ's words seriously in Matthew 11 where he says, if you, if you come to me, if you're weary and burdened, I will give you rest and, and it's rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The laws of the Old Testament are not easy and light. We know this from the storyline. But his gospel is easy. His grace is easy. It's light. It's easy to bear because you're not really bearing anything. You're receiving the gift of the promise of eternal life if we simply trust in him to be sufficient. So God loves this. He loves when he sees his church walk freely in his grace and, and praise him all along. And then finally, in verses 7 and 8, uh, speaking, he speaks about her breasts. He says, Your breasts are like the tree's clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine. So this one's a little bit trickier. Um, but uh, it, we ask the same question here. It, it, it's not, just to kind of go back to what I was saying about the, the human side before. The point here is not, you know, husbands say this precise thing to your wives as much as you can and all your marital troubles will go away. Uh, but, and, and if there's any physical side to this, I mean, and actually, you know, especially for a newlywed, but you could say this about any marriage, you know, we don't have to, if someone would, would imply that the point here is to command husbands to love their wife's breasts, you know, I think one response is, well, you don't have to command that to men. It just happens, you know, just love their wife's breasts. Especially for a newlywed man like Solomon is here, it's like, why would you even have to command that? It's a waste of ink. But anyway, um, the greater point here is uh, not that human side, but the spiritual side is how does this spiritually convey gospel truth? Uh, from Jesus' point of view, obviously it's not literal or, or literally sexual, it's metaphorical, but from a spiritual point of view, how does this tap into what Jesus thinks of, of the church? And what's really helpful interpretationally is to see that he's not just describing a woman's breasts here, but calling them cluster, a particular kind of fruit. Clusters of the vine, which are what? Grapes, right, which is huge. And if we, if we ask that question first and answer that question like we just did, uh, then we can ask elsewhere, where, where else is, is, this, is the church called a, a, a cluster of grapes? Or maybe, and we're not going to talk about this today, but you can also ask the same question about wine, another angle that um, I'd encourage you to follow too at some point. Uh, but if we ask the question about grapes, John 15, 4, in the New Testament, Jesus speaking, says this, to the church, just disciples, but to all of us, abide in me, remain in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, 
is that vine language. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Fruit, then, is a byproduct of being in Christ. When, when we're saved, when we remain in the fact that he's died for our sins and, and rose again, we remain in that. Uh, we bear fruit. The Bible talks with this agrarian metaphor all over the place. Old and New Testament, this is one of those places where Jesus is this vine. We are the branches, and we bear fruit off these branches. And the fruit is uh, a life of uh, you know, spiritual positive response and worship to him, love for the church, and just generally speaking, a, love, a life of good works. Galatians 5 talks about this as well when it says the fruit of the Spirit, so fruit, same idea here, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and it goes on. But the operating phrase here is of the Spirit. It's not just the fruit of a Christian, it's the fruit of the Spirit. So the Spirit gives these things. These are things that Jesus is saying you can't do anything apart from me. You can't do good or bear fruit apart from me. If you remain in me in my gospel, then it's a byproduct of belief. Your life will change and you'll transform and you'll bear fruit. Uh, so the fruit of the Spirit, of God's Spirit inside of us, so he gives this, uh, grants us life change. It's a byproduct of salvation. Ephesians 2.10 says, same idea, for we are his workmanship, the church, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And this is the key here. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God prepared good works for you before you were saved that now if you remain in Christ, you receive as a gift to walk around in them and to do them. You talk about something you can't boast in, right? That you can't take credit for. We can't take credit for anything as Christians, not even the good things that we do post-conversion. Those things are given as a gift. and Like a great artist to a painting, you know, God is looking at us saying, Look what I've done. It's amazing. And he loves the painting as we walk around with these, uh, with, these, with these good works. And actually, he likens it here to a man enjoying the breasts of his wife as well. Striking that he does this. But so does God sit back and enjoy the good works that flow from his, his people's lives. And so he, he loves this because, remember Ephesians 5 says this, like a man loves his wife's body, it's kind of like he's enjoying they're taking care of his own body because there's that shared ownership of each other, right, in marriage. I am his and he is mine, she says. And so when, he's, when, when Christ is looking at the good works of the church, he's looking at his good works. He's saying, look what I've done. Look at this masterpiece I've painted. It's beautiful. They're bearing fruit, the fruit of the vine to my glory. And it's a beautiful thing to watch the church who used to be heathen and who's, who used to rebel, who used to be so full of themselves they couldn't see anything in front of them, but now they're so God-focused and self-sacrificial. That only comes from me. It only flows like a river from the foot of the cross, and, and he rejoices. He loves these things, like Solomon loves these types of aspects of his wife's body. There are many other things here as well. This is a sampling today, uh, and, I, and I encourage you to go back and to ask these same types of questions about every sentence, clause, in the poem and ask, where else in the Bible does these things arise? You'll, be, you'll hit some dead ends, and that's okay. Uh, it's good to be humbled in the Scriptures and to realize we can't understand everything because where would that put us, right? We'd be in the place of God. There are mysteries in the Bible, but if we, if we ask these gospel-centered questions, we will get to some wonderfully profound landing points, and we'll, and we'll get a better understanding of how God looks at His church and what we're like, what, are, what the body of Christ really is. Now, we have beautiful feet. You know, we, we bear fruit to his glory. We have a posture that's salvific. We're not hunched over anymore. 
in a spiritual sense. We've been freed, freed from our sin. The blood of Christ is that powerful to, to wash us and to substitute for us that we might walk around in that type of freedom. So, but anyway, there's much more to say, but this is a few examples. What, what I want to wrap up here with, though, is a few thoughts, uh, kind of going back to how I started, but, um, and that is this. Use the word when. I like to just, it's just a good way to look at these types of human things as they relate to the divine. But when a husband, when you see this happen in your marriage, and this is, certainly could go back from the wife to husband way too, but pulling from uh, chapter 7, when he's speaking, especially, when a husband cherishes his wife, and her body. Uh, the Bible is saying there's a deeper reason why this occurs. So we can look at this in two ways, right? We can just say, well, that's biological, it's evolutionary, it's physiological, it's just random, and it makes no sense, or no, no kind of logical sense necessarily whatsoever. But the Bible is saying there's a deeper spiritual reason why, uh, why this occurs. And I actually think it's not a coincidence that men generally love their wife's bodies a lot more than the wives love their husband's bodies. And that's just generally true. Maybe there's some exceptions out there, but I guess 99% of people, I think, your marriages that you survey would say that, hey, we, we both love sex, maybe, but um, my husband wants, wants that more, and he loves my body more than, than I love his. I love his, but it's just maybe not my main thing. It's whatever, other things. But um, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think there's a reason why. Uh, it's spiritual. It's by design. It tells a story. Because when men love their wives' bodies more than a wife loves her husband's body, it conveys spiritually to us that Jesus loves us more than we love him. Jesus loves us more than we love him. Men, you are Christ husbands, you are Christ figures in your marriage. When, when you have that type of feeling in your marriage, that I feel like I, I, I physically want my wife more than she does me, it's a small image and picture of how the Bible says elsewhere, Christ wants us more than we want him. He's the ultimate husband, and we're the bride, right? These are true things. We see this by experience in marriage. We see this in the Bible by the gospel. Is it a coincidence? I don't think there's such a thing in reality because God is master and Lord over every molecule under the sun. He's arranged it as such to tell a story. And so when a man loves and cherishes his wife's body, it's a picture of Christ loving the church. He loves her feet because God loves when his church shares good news with others. He loves her upright stature because God loves to save us from slavery to sin so that we might walk upright forever in the freedom of his grace. He loves her breasts because God loves the fruit of his spirit or good works when they're alive in a, in a church, imperfectly but alive nonetheless in a church community. And what you see here is kind of a cool progression of all of salvation here from from God loving to send people to announce salvation to actually saving people in the middle here, actually helping them to walk upright in the gospel and then allowing good works to flow from the saved as well. This happens chronologically, right, for all of us who've been saved. We, we've heard, we've called the feet of other people beautiful when they've come to us to share the gospel with us because they've told us about Jesus. We've been freed, we've walked upright, we've had a salvific stature and posture because of, spiritually because of his grace and we've borne fruit. Uh, to, uh, to his glory because we've remained in the vine and he's given those to us. So with all of this said then, I, I think this is how Christians can avoid becoming prudish when it comes to sex and when it comes to marriage. When it comes to even any physical thing under the sun, we can say, 
We are to receive these things, as the Bible says, with thanksgiving because they're all gifts. Now, we can't worship them, but we can see them as gifts from God that help tell a story physically and that, as George Burroughs says, impress on us spiritual truths beneath them. Christians should not be prudish. We should be receptive in the right manners of the, the sensual and the sensible and the physical, the things we eat and partake in and watch. And not to worship, that's too far, but to celebrate because they point us to, to greater things. So, to husbands and wives, enjoy marriage. Husbands, enjoy your wife's body and wives, your husbands, because when you do, you enjoy the gospel behind marriage. It's amazing that he does this for us. And, and, and always remember, this is the thing that, that it, the way grammatically it's worded here is, well, easy to miss. It's a small thing, but huge at the same time. And going back to Leviticus here, where does, God, where does God ultimately make you walk erect? Where does he ultimately make you walk upright? Song of Solomon's not saying, have beautiful feet. He's saying, you already have beautiful feet. If you're a Christian, your feet are beautiful to him. He's not saying, try to walk upright and live better lives. He's saying, you already do. If you are the bride, if we, church, if we are the bride here, we're just, we're being called something that's already true about us, right? We're already saved. If if you're a Christian, then you are already have the capacity by the Spirit to bear, bear fruit and good work. So the call is, live like it. It's happening all around you right now at Hiawatha Church. Are you in the game or not? Do you have beautiful feet? You already do. Use them. Are you like the person you're sitting next to by crossing over your hallway or street and saying, in some capacity, figuratively or literally, and moving towards lost people and announcing good news? Or living as though you're saved from your sin, walking freely away from it, or bearing the fruit of good works in the context of your church and, and, and the world. It's happening. Do you want to participate or not? Or do you really think this is true about you or not? Because the degree to which you think it's true is the degree to which you'll live as though it's true. So it's not try harder to get this. It's you already have them as the bride of Christ. It's a gift. Don't earn it. Believe you have it. And then live accordingly. Keep in step with with that idea, and God, will, God already loves you in this. That's, that's why you don't have to earn his gaze. He's already looking at you in this capacity, and he'll never stop that. He's your husband. He's not your boss, your taskmaster. He's like a loving husband and a loving father to you. He's a friend. He, he's the master of the universe, and he is like, he's, he's died for your sins to make all of this possible by grace. Believe that and, and walk accordingly today. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, the, the gospel of song 7, 1 to 10, uh, how it, in a poetic, very veiled, but intentional way nonetheless, uh, hearkens us to Christ, uh, points us ahead to the cross where all of these things are, are made much more clear. Uh, thank you for saving us, making us walk upright, for giving us good works to walk in, for making our feet beautiful for you. I pray that you'd help us as a church and as individuals live as though that is true. Uh, to embrace that, that reality and not to try to earn that, but to believe it's true right now. If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he's died for our sins, that that is who we are. We're, we're like the woman. We're like the bride in this story. Praise be to God that uh, that, that is the case. And, and also help us as Christians, too, to not be uh, as prude, like to live like prudes uh, like many in the world do, uh, but to believe that God has made everything in its time. And he's called us to be, th- you've called us to be thankful for those things, to receive them as gifts from you, and to see how the gospel is whispered in them. Uh, bless us, God, as we respond and leave. In Christ's name, amen.